Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Ostel. Yeah, I mean, figuring out how to displace the need for the backup diesel generators and a lot of these applications, like that's still the final boss, as it were, to beat. <laughs> Just because right. how, how quickly you can spin them up and, and how, you know, mobile and all that they are. Yeah, and like the thing that I got deep into the weeds on during my time at NYSERDA was also some of the regs that you have from FEMA when you're dealing with, you know, locations like public housing, which essentially mandate diesel backup gensets. Yeah. And so again, like in many cases, you know, it's not simply the technical hurdle or the boss that you have to beat to use your language, right? It's policy. Yeah, it's not exclusively the hardware or the tech. That's, uh, that's definitely true too. You know, the tech can get to the point where it's competitive, but then you probably still have sometimes five, 10 years before the policy makers catch up to that factor. And that's an important education challenge too. It's incredibly complicated. And, you know, unfortunately, it really does vary state by state and region by region, which has made this whole, you know, clean energy nut so difficult to crack, right? Mm. Like, it's not like you can upload one thing to the app store and <laughs> serve everyone. You know, when you're dealing with technology that touches the grid, fundamentally, you're dealing with utilities, you know, their their monopoly status, you're, you're dealing with, you know, departments of public service and regulators and right. local environmental groups. Like it's it's a very, very complex landscape, I think, for a lot of early stage companies to navigate. All right, Micah, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Thanks, Nick. It's awesome to be here. So why don't we get started by orienting folks to your career a bit and how you ultimately came to investing in climate tech. I know that there were some interesting pit stops along the way that maybe we can dive into a little bit to start. Yeah, I've had a very nonlinear career path. I was born and raised here in New York and was an Asian studies Chinese major at Colgate University and went to live and work in China uh, for a while and started my first company putting games on phones. And I really caught the sustainability bug, I would say, in like 2003. I was doing some volunteer work with a woman who was the chair of the industrial design department at Pratt Institute, who introduced me to Paul Hawken. And I was kind of hooked. And she had this vision to create this design incubator for sustainable innovation. And because I had some experience working with startups and raising capital and I really helped her to create this initiative, uh, which continues to thrive to this day. And mm. it's a real eye-opening introduction to me, looking at facilities and operations and energy and kind of the energy transition. And then after the financial crisis of 2008, I had moved over to NYU and started uh, New York City's first sponsored technology incubator for Mayor Bloomberg. And the New York City Economic Development Corporation at a time when the city was really looking to diversify its economy. And, and right along the same time, the Partnership for New York came out with a strategy looking at the sector development around clean energy technology and essentially came to the conclusion that New York is this massive consumer of green, but didn't really produce green and wanted to change that. And so um, NYSERDA and the city really came together to facilitate some cluster development and open the program called ACRE, the Accelerator for a Clean and Resilient Economy, 
which morphed into the Urban Future Lab, which again is a program that continues to thrive today. So I was there as the founding director for five years and then actually moved to NYSERDA right after Hurricane Sandy to run a program for the governor focused on uh, resiliency and specifically critical infrastructure resiliency. And the interesting thing about that program, which is called New York Prize, was we looked at uh, community microgrid applications where you had essentially a critical infrastructure load that was connected to either commercial or residential load Mm -hmm. um, as a way not only to demonstrate the ability to island in the event of an emergency to keep hospitals or schools up when the grid went down, but really as a a way to think about utility business model innovation. Right. And I got to do a ton of really interesting work with some incredibly brilliant people from the governor's office and from NYSERDA, really under the leadership of Richard Kaufman, and kind of got to see and, and understand what change looks like from the perspective of the utilities and the regulators, as well as you know, from innovators who were looking to, you know, help the state meet its clean energy goals, we could really optimize for business model innovation from the utility perspective. And then I joined UrbanX, uh, which was the accelerator from BMW and Mini focused on the future of cities. Just an incredible opportunity to get me a little bit closer to startups, which is really the work that I love. (laughs) And uh, we backed about 70 companies. We had four acquisitions out of that program really great companies like Blueprint Power. And those companies went on to raise somewhere around uh, half a billion dollars of of external capital. Mm. It's a five-month accelerator initiative where we really focused on product development, fundraising help, and customer introductions. And through that, I met the team at Blackhorn Ventures. And uh, they had invested in a couple of, of the UrbanX alumni companies like Toggle, this really interesting construction robotics company, and a, another company called Nearspace Labs uh, that's based here in Brooklyn. Mm. And then I, I joined Blackhorn as a New York-based partner uh, last year. Awesome trajectory. I mean, you know, been doing it for more than a decade and participating in so many of these and even starting so many of these accelerators. You've probably seen more sustainable and climate tech companies than than most people. So <laughs> I think there's something to be said for pattern recognition and, and also <laughs> I think something to be said for a focus on fundamentals, right? At the early mm. stage, like so absolutely critical, I think for founders to deeply understand, you know, their customer and the ecosystem in which they operate. I'm a big uh, evangelist for the lean launchpad and lean startup methodology. Uh, I've been a core national faculty member for the National Science Foundation's I-Core program, which really uses that notion of customer discovery kind of as its pillar. And I think, you know, so many founders kind of come out with a product that they fall in love with or something that they think solves their problem, but don't really understand the nuances of, of customer behavior within, mm-hmm. again, some pretty complex markets, whether that's real estate or transportation or energy or what have you. And so I think, mm-hmm. you know, customer discovery, there's just absolutely no replacement for good old fashioned customer discovery. There you go. It's a great nugget for any of the founders or would-be founders listening in already. Before we dive a ton deeper, let's quickly introduce folks to Blackhorn and kind of what the investment thesis is and, and what your time there so far has looked like. Yeah. Well, I will say that it's been a really amazing ride at Blackhorn and I'm incredibly privileged to work with some really 
brilliant, but uh, also empathetic and experienced people. We invest in early stage companies who are leveraging resource efficiency and digital infrastructure to transform our economy. So at Blackhorn, you know, we think that uh, many of the most compelling opportunities exist really at the intersection of building electrification, EV fleet infrastructure, construction and supply chain. We have four domains that we really focus on, and that is energy, transportation, the built environment and construction, and supply chain and logistics. Great. And we invest in the seed and series A stage in software-based companies that are really unlocking the value of existing technologies. Over the past five years, Blackhorn's built a portfolio of approximately 70 companies who are really, I think, making a material impact on our largest and highest emitting mm. industrial sectors. So we're, we're very focused on industrial data revolution. And you know, I would say that we really tend not to take a ton of novel technology risk on the hardware side, but have a, a very strong preference for low capital intensity. Got it. And what are, since you've joined, what are some of kind of the deals or the companies that you've been introduced to or even invested in that have just kind of stood out to you and are emblematic of some of these sectors that you all like to accelerate companies in? Yeah. So, you know, I get really excited about uh, the teams that we've been able to work with and Industrial Impact Fund too. You know, I'll, I'll walk you through just, just a couple that I think are probably, you know, emblematic of the kinds of investments that we, I think, really like to make. And, you know, again, things that are leveraging kind of industrial automation and opportunities, again, at that intersection of industrial transformation and decarbonization. Mm -hmm. So the first company that I'll talk about is a startup called Isometric. Uh, It's the first collaborative performance management solution for the global supply chain. It enables shippers and carriers to identify and and reconcile supply chain failures. And it was built by the team that launched Uber Freight. Got it. Um, So we co-led their Series A with Maersk Growth Fund. Mm. Second company, which I think we would put into the category of an enabling technology and one that's really also focused on workforce and labor is a startup called Datch. They provide an AI voice interface that allows workers to talk through their jobs conversationally and in real time while structuring and and routing that information to the system of record. Launched by an exceptional team of of engineers who work together at Siemens Energy and at TransPower, which is New Zealand's uh, transmission utility and grid operator. And what's fascinating there is like deskless workers make up roughly 80% of the world's workforce. And we think they, you know, they really benefit from digital solutions that enhance their output without disrupting their hands-on day-to-day work. So when you think about you know, all this talk about AI, we actually see a, just a massive potential in using things like AI to reduce kind of time spent on digital processes and make workers out in the field, whether those are folks who are checking the health of a transformer or installing, you know, infrastructure for the energy transition, um, essentially more, more effective. Right. Yeah. It's not necessarily about replacing those people. It's more about augmenting and helping them do their jobs more efficiently, at least in the near term and medium term. Right. Another interesting company is called Circuit Minds. They have developed a step phase change in how electronic circuits are designed and built. I think, again, something that probably does not get enough attention is the slow pace of electronic circuit design. 
you know, one of the most persistent bottlenecks is really the design of circuits themselves. Again, it's another industry where there's a, a massive shortage of skilled labor, a lack of parts. The process itself really has, has been relatively unchanged for the past three decades. And so with circuit mine, you can actually design those circuits something like 9,000 times faster than current methods with Jeez. fewer parts and a, and a 23% boost in power efficiency. And so again, you know, you think about the need for new circuits, again, whether those are in electric vehicles or connected devices or what have you, the ability to use less energy, less materials, get to market faster, you know, really accelerate the proliferation of energy efficiency and energy efficiency technology, I think is, is super compelling and interesting. And that's a seed stage investment alongside Differential and Google and, and episode one. So we're super excited about that. Yeah, these are some great examples because, you know, so much attention is paid to things like the really macro level picture of like, what's our fuel source on the grid or what have you, you know, like, how are we generating electricity? But there's so much that can also be accomplished when you think about kind of more specific things like you're bringing up, whether it's circuit design or enhancing efficiency and shipping, like all those things can ladder up to make significant impact too. So yeah, we're kind of turning over some cool stones that I think don't necessarily always get as much love. Yeah, yeah, no, look, I completely agree. And I think also, you know, think about, you know, digital infrastructure and, and that kind of opportunity. Again, like that is where we get really excited is how do we start to transition and accelerate the transition uh, for change in some really big industries. Mm. So, you know, another great example of the kind of work that we'll do is a company called EcoWorks, which is actually based in Germany. So they are a tech-enabled energy retrofit design-build prefab firm that's very focused on kind of rapid, cost-effective, carbon-neutral serial energy retrofits. And the thing that makes this, I think, really interesting as well is, you know, in Europe, you have some pretty progressive legislation that basically says that multifamily resi have to retrofit their buildings to meet new building energy efficiency standards Right. Otherwise, they become stranded assets. And when you couple that with the energy crisis and what's happened as a result of the war in Ukraine, you really start to, I think, see the future for what could happen, I think, here in the U.S. And so right. EcoWorks is this really interesting software-driven approach where they assemble a kit of parts off-site, and then they can come in and retrofit non-compliant buildings a whole lot faster and cheaper but also really upgrade those buildings, energy systems with things like solar and heat pumps in a cost-effective way. And so again, like awesome digitization opportunity, awesome decarbonization opportunity, and just a massive market. I mean, here in, you know, here in New York, huge market for multifamily residential energy efficiency retrofits. In Germany alone, it's something like a $350 billion market. So I bet, yeah. um, you know, a lot of that focus on kind of prefab modular and single process automation is also what you'll find across the Blackhorn portfolio. Yeah. And I love how you kind of mentioned the, yeah, the energy crisis in Europe, because, you know, as bad as it is, it's a great catalyst for the exact type of stuff that we're talking about, where it's like, okay, we need to figure out how to both decarbonize and save money, you know, from a consumer perspective, complete switch of fuel sources, again, one option, but also like thinking about the demand side, like how do we just 
enhance energy efficiency and uh, you know make a lot of stepwise changes on that front. And hopefully, as you said, a lot of this stuff migrates to the U.S. too because we need it here too. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I was just reading to BP, so an oil major, you know, BP basically has come out with their annual energy outlook and, and essentially said, like, the war in Ukraine has accelerated the energy transition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in many ways, I think you're right, Nick, like there's absolutely a place for a new generation and for, you know, deep tech to solve some of the really big problems that we have uh, around, you know, ways that we can both kind of adapt and mitigate some of the biggest threats that we that we face. But I think that there's also, we are certainly nowhere near the penetration that we need, for example, of things like solar mm-hmm. in multi-tenant buildings. So we actually, we invested in a really interesting company called King Energy, which has a tech stack that unlocks commercial scale solar at multi-tenant buildings. And the challenge has really always been, how do you benefit property owners and tenants? And so again, like great example of a company that's using software to share that energy savings. The founder came from Prosper, was the senior technical architect at Solar City, mm. and is really kind of looking to align incentives where they basically rent the roof space, generate revenue for an unused asset for property owners you know, provide that clean energy to tenants at a significant discount compared to what they would purchase energy from the utility. Right. And then kind of optimize the tariff rates for all the tenants involved. So, Mm. you know, again, it's fintech for kind of commercial (laughs) scale solar, which, you know, the hardware is not the limiting factor there, right? It's really, how do you kind of share in the upside? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's still plenty of improvement to be made on things like the storage and to go along with the the solar. But yeah, I get what you're I get what you're saying, and I'm sure that one was fun for you, especially considering your kind of early days background in microgrids and stuff like that. Seeing it all come full circle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the growth in the microgrid industry, I think, has been pretty interesting. And you know, still, I don't think you know we are where ultimately we want to be, given some of the challenges that we face around extreme weather events mm-hmm. and grid resiliency. But it does feel like for a lot of customers out there, whether those are resi customers or commercial, that there's been some recognition that the ability to island is absolutely essential. And that if in fact you can do that, you know, then you experience benefits even during blue sky operating days. Yeah. I think the real question is like, given the cost of, of energy storage, how do you deliver, you know, the, the generation that you need in a significant way without using fossil gen, especially in like space constrained locations? Yeah, I mean, figuring out how to displace the need for the backup diesel generators and a lot of these applications, like that's still the final boss, as it were, to beat <laughs> just because yeah, right. how, how quickly you can spin them up and, and how, you know, mobile and all that they are. Yeah. And like the thing that I got deep into the weeds on during my time at NYSERDA was also some of the regs that you have from FEMA when you're dealing with, you know, locations like public housing, which essentially mandate diesel backup gensets. Yeah. And so again, like in many cases, you know, it's not simply the technical hurdle or the boss that you have to beat to use your language, right? It's policy. Yeah, it's not exclusively the hardware or the tech. That's uh, that's definitely true too. You know, the tech can get to the point where it's competitive, but then you probably still have sometimes five, ten years before the policy 
makers catch up to that factor. And that's an important education challenge too. It's incredibly complicated. And, you know, unfortunately, it really does vary state by state and region by region, which has made this whole, you know, clean energy nut so difficult to crack, right? Mm. Like, it's not like you can upload one thing to the app store and <laughs> serve everyone. You know, when you're dealing with technology that touches the grid, fundamentally, you're dealing with utilities, you know, their, their monopoly status, you're, you're dealing with, you know, departments of public service and regulators and right. local environmental groups. Like it's, it's a very, very complex landscape, I think, for a lot of early stage companies to navigate. Yeah, I mean, talk about opportunities for, for software, even just kind of figuring out or charting out like all the different stakeholders and figuring out how to interface with all of them effectively. Like I'm sure there's opportunities in there for companies to build solutions that help other companies navigate. It's like, okay, who are all the different parties that we need to interface with and get on board to make this stuff really work and scale? I'm sure there's work being done there. No immediate examples come to mind. I think I have actually heard of one company that makes a product called Land Tender that kind of helps with the stakeholder management for things like reforestation in California. But uh, I'm sure there's lots of other opportunities for that type of stuff. Well, we've charted some really good companies that you're excited about, kind of themes that you're excited about. I'd be curious to ask, because you've been working in this field a lot longer than myself, for one, and, and other folks that are kind of newer to climate tech, what are some things that you've noticed have changed since you were first doing some of the work helping companies and accelerators earlier in your career versus like now when you talk to companies? Like, How have those conversations changed? And at the same time, I imagine a lot of the same challenges that these folks bump up against are still pretty similar. Well, look, I, I have always been about growing the pie and the talent transition that, that's happening now and the way that it's gone mainstream, I think is absolutely remarkable. And I get incredibly excited about the caliber of people, you know, the perspectives that new entrants bring, whether those, you know, people are coming from finance or healthcare or big tech, the relationships and networks. And, you know, like I say, like the perspective that they bring on getting to scale, I just think is fantastic. We didn't have that 10 years ago, right? Like there was a small trickle. Yeah. Now like the floodgates are open. And I think, you know, in many ways kind of driven by some of the layoffs, but also by the much more apparent and I think visible sense of urgency around addressing, you know, this issue. Yeah. And I think like there's a real sense that there's massive economic opportunity here. Right. Right. Like Larry Fink came out and said, what, there's going to be a thousand unicorns in this, <laughs> in this space. Hopefully more. And there's a whole lot more capital and sophisticated capital, right? Like USV, you know, arguably the venture fund with the best track record out there in traditional tech just launched their second climate tech fund. Right. And have some really smart people who are thinking about ways that they can be catalytic. You know, I think you also have things like Prime Coalition, which, you know, which have really kind of hit their stride and, and I think are using, you know, philanthropic capital to invest in things that the market might not, not otherwise fund. You have, you know, certainly historic investments from the federal government, which, you know, again, a lot of the action 10 years ago, I think, was at the state level. Right. And while that certainly still is the case, and I think you can, I'm super proud to be a New Yorker in terms of you know, our emissions reduction commitments are, you know, really significant work that we've done, for example, on, you know, offshore wind. I mean, nine gigawatts of offshore wind here in New York is a, is a really, really big deal. Ahead of my home state in California, they don't yeah, have any yet. <laughs> totally, right? So there's this great competition between 
I think municipalities and, and states from a mobility and generation and building codes perspective, like I think those things are fantastic. But what is unprecedented is this investment that the federal government has made, which again, I was just reading this morning. You know, you look at what's happened in EV infrastructure and, you know, I mean, it's pretty remarkable right. when you think about, you know, the fact that something like companies have announced more than $73 billion in planned U.S. battery plants just in the last year. Yeah, seems like every week there's a new announcement. It really is pretty remarkable. And I think, you know, again, this is the right role for the public sector to play, as you said, you know, transparency, longevity, and certainty, right? And then the private sector steps up. And we haven't even begun, I don't think, to see, you know, investments from IRA really starting to pay off in kind of tangible ways. It hasn't even, like a lot of the tax credits are still just starting to roll out and become available to consumers. And the states have just filed their NEVI plans for for EV infrastructure. But like, I just think we are on the cusp of some dramatic change over the next 10 years that I think most folks don't really appreciate or have a sense of the scale of the investments that have been made. And so while there are these you know, culture issue uh, fights that get a lot of airtime around gas stoves or what <laughs> have you. I think, you know, when we're talking about, you know, our infrastructure, we're talking about, you know, how we move or how we build or, you know, how we generate and, and transmit energy. Like I said, I just think the next 10 years are going to be incredibly exciting. And again, I think we approach it from a sense of urgency because, you know, we know where we need to get to. And every minute and every degree counts. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty rare that you get, you know, public sector spending and support, as we've talked about, private sector spending and support, consumer demand, the human capital quotient where people want to work in this space. And then also like the global catalysts of price of fossil fuels is going up. And so there's an additional incentive to try and reduce your dependency on them. And all of that definitely coalesces into a pretty powerful wave of momentum. Yeah. I mean, just maybe just two other thoughts on like the other things that I've seen change. So, you know, number one, I'll say is like, I think corporates have been engaging a whole lot earlier and in more sophisticated ways. Mm. And I think that's positive. I think that's a net positive. And um, my colleague Richard Kaufman at NYSERDA used to say, you know, people will do the right things for the wrong reasons. And, you know, it is interesting, I think, to see how, again, like this whole ESG fight has played out. But fundamentally, you know, if things are, are good for business, and particularly, you know, in an inflationary environment, if in fact, you know, you can help drive, you know, profitability or reduce costs, because, you know, there's a resource efficiency opportunity. You know, that's pretty interesting from a founder perspective. That's always compelling. And the other thing I'll, I'll just say is that I do think that the quality of founders, you know, that that we see, you know, every day is really hopeful. Mm. You know, again, you have incredibly creative and, you know, and, and mission aligned and accomplished people who believe that they can change the world with their, you know, product or service. And they're really thoughtful about how they're going to approach this. And the investment community is right there with them. And so for all the talk about, you know, valuation overhang and, you know, tech pullback, et cetera, at the early stage, and particularly in early stage climate tech, I think we are probably more insulated from that than anyone. And so again, just like 
the velocity and caliber of founders out there who are looking to solve these massive challenges, again, particularly you know, around digital infrastructure, gives you a lot of hope for what we can accomplish in the future. Yeah, that's good to hear. It's heartening for sure. And I was going to ask you about that. You know, you already articulated a little bit of this of potentially being more isolated than other sectors in tech from, and I'm kind of speaking to the venture capital fundraising environment for a lot of these firms. But, you know, what other thoughts do you have about it? Because you've been in the space for a long time and there was, you know, the late aughts and early 2010s, there was kind of also a similar amount of, not a similar amount, but there was some momentum for investing in climate tech back then. Certainly what we're seeing now is even more significant, but I'm curious whether you think this has a lot of lasting momentum or if there's a risk that we're getting out over our skis a tiny bit in some areas in climate tech too. I mean, I wonder if both can be true. Yeah, probably. I think a little paranoia is probably good. And I do think that when you look across, you know, a thousand deals that were done last year by something like 600 investors who participated in more than two climate tech deals, like that's a lot. You know, at the same time, again, like we're talking about essentially the shift of our economy. Yeah. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of, a lot of room to run and I think a lot of opportunity. But again, I think it comes down to kind of a focus on fundamentals and not everyone has that discipline. So, you know, will there be a shakeout and will there be some consolidation and will there be some funds that don't get fully raised and, you know, founders who not only have to take a down round, but also, you know, ultimately, you know, cannot reach their next milestone. Unfortunately, I, I think that that is absolutely the case. Right. But it's, you know, I think, A, it's it's kind of part of, of every ecosystem and it's hard to get away from, you know, the hype cycle that exists here and in pretty much every industry. But I do think that, you know, it creates kind of a forcing function for founders and and for investors, again, to really be focused on, you know, on fundamentals and, you know, driving the the, the growth of, of great companies who can capitalize on this opportunity. Right. Yeah, there's always going to be some some cycles to it. That's kind of the way the market capitalist economy works. But ideally, it's two or three steps forward, one step back instead of one and one. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, there will be some iconic companies built during this time. Totally. And I also think like, you know, from a valuation perspective, some of the later stage companies probably make really good acquisitions. You know, you see that with Shell's acquisition of Volta. I think you'll start to see more of that. And it's probably a signal that, you know, not only were some crazy deals done at some insane valuations, but also, you know, the space is starting to mature. Right. And zooming out of, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of the venture side of things. What are some other, you know, things that you're interested in climate more broadly, whether it's, you know, we've talked a little bit about transitioning folks into into working in climate, but could be things on the policy environment. Let's zoom it out. What else are you watching in 2023? Yeah. So I have long been interested in jobs and workforce. And so I sit on the board of this outstanding uh, nonprofit organization called Green City Force. Uh, it's an AmeriCorps organization works with young people from frontline communities and trains them for careers in the green economy. Oh, that's awesome. And look, I, I just think that there is a huge amount of work to be done, you know, to retrofit our building stock and to install renewable energy systems and to maintain those systems. And th those are jobs that can't be outsourced and they exist at far greater quantities than the number of VC jobs, as a for example. Right. And so I'm just very bullish on the opportunity for young people in particular 
and young people who live in public housing to participate in this energy transition. And it's through organizations like Green City Forest and Block Power, those opportunities will start to uh, really scale. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I mean, it ties back to earlier piece of our conversation, you know, talking about that awesome German firm that helps plan and accelerate retrofitting and energy efficiency upgrades in homes. Like ultimately you can make it easier for folks, but you still need someone to go in and do the work. And we need those people and we're going to need a lot more of them across not just the US, but the world, as you mentioned. Absolutely. So I, I think that that's, you know, that's one space that, you know, that, that I've been watching and, and kind of zooming out. You know, I think another space I was just talking uh, to some friends about this uh, last night is the opportunity around methane detection. Yeah, big one. You know, such a potent greenhouse gas. And again, one where some new technology has been developed that I think allows you to really start to pinpoint where those leaks are. And, you know, fundamentally, like, again, if we're going to hit our 2030 targets, like, you know, you, you probably want a, a focus there. Right. Yeah, it's a good example of, just, you know, whether it's drones or LIDAR or other technologies, like that's one significant application of them. So as those things become cheaper, more accessible, more scalable, you know, methane detection is a great example and will probably be other really useful climate applications that people will start using them for. Yeah. And I think, you know, just coming back from a, a policy perspective as well, right? So, you know, again, I don't think we're going to see significant action at the federal level, you know, for the next couple of years. So, you know, I think cities and states are going to continue to lead. And it'll be really interesting to see the kinds of things that that cities are really at the vanguard of. And, you know, the example I love here is Denver has this wildly popular e-bike rebate program. And um, I'm pretty bullish on this next generation of micro mobility. I think, you know, it's a great way for, you know, people to get around, you know, when they're taking short trips, which are majority of trips that are taken. And so from an emissions perspective and from a city's perspective, like where there's good infrastructure, where there's good policy, where the weather cooperates, like I'm very excited about this next generation of privately owned micro mobility, but also again, one where municipal governments are leading with some really like smart progressive policy. Right. Yeah. And maybe the privately owned component is important, at least in the near term, because I think version 0.5 or 1.0 with some of the like electric scooters from Bird and Lyft and Uber didn't always go so well when people didn't have that incentive to take care of the, the equipment themselves. But yeah, I'm, I'm interested in the, in the progression of that space as well. Yeah. So, you know, before we prepare to part ways, one more company that you're super excited about, something that we haven't hit yet, maybe in, I don't know, maybe in transportation. Yeah. So I get really excited about opportunities where the current rate of digitization is really low, but the opportunity for decarbonization is really high. Hmm. And when you look at the rail industry, so what's really interesting here, right, is like trains are, are really kind of the backbone of our supply chain. Right. So much freight still moves by train. And they are inherently, just because of the physics, way more efficient than road or sea transport. But the rail industry's second biggest expense after uh, labor is actually fuel. Yeah. It's mostly diesel, right? Some really large publicly traded rail companies that will spend something like a billion dollars a quarter on diesel fuel. Yeah. And most of them have very, very little visibility into kind of how that fuel is consumed or where cost savings might be realized. 
due to more efficient acceleration and braking. Mm. And so there's this really outstanding company that's based in Canada called RailVision, which has developed some cognitive vision sensor technology and safety systems uh, for the rail industry to really maximize train efficiency and minimize GHG emissions. Got it. And so they have some software. It's a software-only play uh, that integrates data sources that are already on locomotives, and they create essentially an intuitive kind of tablet-based app um, that's used by the train operator and conductor to um, help increase operational efficiency. Got it. And the lever really is like the acceleration and, and braking, as you said, I assume. So, if, And if you can do that and you really deeply understand the corridor that that line is running on and the freight that that train is carrying, or the, you know, again, if it, could, it works for commuter rail as well, you can reduce fuel use and emissions by something like up to 20%. So again, just a great and exciting opportunity to leverage artificial intelligence and machine learning to drive operational efficiencies for train operators. And and we've unfortunately all been, I think, reading recently about some of the challenges around rail and what dramatic cost cutting has led to um, over the last several decades. Yeah, important not to lose sight of it. I mean, it's be a long time before. Think so much about, you know, 18 wheelers and stuff like that, but there's still so much mass that moves on the rail systems that have been there for so long. A lot of low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Well, that's an awesome one to uh, to close on. Before we wrap up, like, what types of firms are you interested in hearing from in your work at Blackhorn, and how should folks uh, get a hold of you? Yeah, you know, we we are actively backing founders at Seed and Series A who are developing new digital infrastructure solutions that drive resource productivity and decarbonization. So if you are transforming our industrial economy, if you're working at the intersections of energy, transportation, supply chain, logistics, or construction and built environment, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Climate Mica. Uh, nice. You can go <laughs> to the Blackhorn site, which is blackhornvc.com and get in touch with us. Sweet. Yeah. And if folks reach out to me, I'll be sure to to broker the intros too. All right, Mike, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Nick. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech. Make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.